This is episode 117 of Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Today's guest is Blue Jays writer for MLB.com, Keegan Matheson. Keegan talks about his unique path into the industry, how he made it from Nova Scotia all the way to Toronto, and the things he loves most about back home, and the importance of making sure that your life is bigger than your job. So sit back and enjoy today's episode. And first, a word from our sponsor. If you're like most people, you strive to eat healthy as much as you can, but it gets really difficult when life gets in the way. We get busy, we're running around doing lots of things, it's hard. Being able to eat healthy on the go is super important more than ever now, and that's why I'm here to tell you about G2G Protein Bars. They're the best protein bar for eating healthy on the go. It's made with all natural ingredients, they're fresh, it tastes like homemade, but it's even better. G2G Bars have 18 grams of protein and are gluten-free. With eight different flavors, there's so many different things that you can enjoy about the great tastes of G2G bars and what they have to offer. They're fresh, healthy, and delicious. Make sure to get yours at g2gbar.ca or at your local retailer in Canada or the U.S. Welcome to Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Sit back and enjoy stories and insight from sports icons from all over. Welcome to Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Today's guest was formerly a broken man on a pier in Nova Scotia, but today he finds himself with dignity writing for the Toronto Blue Jays for MLB.com. Please welcome to the show, Keegan Matheson. Keegan, I'm super excited to talk to you, man. It's been a little bit of time, but you've definitely kept yourself busy, no doubt, with all sorts of fine literature in the background, lots of musings through a 162-game professional sports season, and a few occasional visits to the Maritimes. That's right, man. It's very good to be here. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's nice to get a little break in between the uh, 162 games, which is, uh, you know, wh- whoever decided on 162, I'd really love to speak to. But uh, it's good to get a little break to do things like this that are not uh, always at the ballpark. So happy to be here. As I've been told through the famous lore of Malcolm Kelly, you are someone that was determined to be an MLB writer and determined to work with the Blue Jays and in baseball in any capacity. Where does that passion for baseball that you have come from? Yeah, baseball was always my jam uh, growing up. Now, where I grew up in Nova Scotia, it's a uh, you know, small town surrounded by a lot of country. So there, there was a lot of baseball. Um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, playing ball growing up uh, you know, through where I live, up through Cape Breton is, is great baseball territory. Now, you know, I, I grew up during the Sidney Crosby years. So we went from a hockey province to a hockey crazy province. And hockey was never my jam. I don't like hockey. You know, that, that, that's my toxic trait. Um, it's, a, it's a stupid thing to say out loud as a young writer getting into sports media in Canada. But I never wanted to do hockey. Um, baseball was always what interested me. Um, just as a, a writer, as a storyteller, you know, I, I love the roster dynamics. I love how long the season is a little bit less now that I actually cover it. But as a fan, I, I love that there was a game on every single night and always something to do that you could kind of set your personal clock to. Um, now, you know, growing up, I didn't think it was realistic to actually write about it. Um, you know, growing up where I did, you, of course you have a local paper, um, but you turn on TSN or Sportsnet. Um, 
the score, whatever channels there, there were at that time. And, you know, Toronto seemed very far away. Uh, I remember growing up in my town, Halifax was always, you know, the big city. If you said you were going to the city, that meant Halifax. Um, I remember even when I went to university in Halifax at Dalhousie, uh, you know, my friends, you know, lovingly taking digs at me for selling out to the big city. So I don't know what the hell they must be saying now that I'm in Toronto, but uh, it's uh, it's been a long way, uh, but, you know, certainly uh, loving it. You know, it, it's been an interesting journey to get here. I guess this is my fifth or sixth year in Toronto. I've uh, always loved the work. I have not always loved the city. I finally come around on it. It, it was a little big for me for a while, and I, I hated it for a while. But I, I've finally come to absolutely love the city. And, uh, you know, you, you can't beat, uh, you know, waking up. What is it right now? We're talking at 1230. It's, uh, you know, slow morning, slow afternoon. And then I'm going to stumble down to the ballpark in a couple of hours. That's a, it's a pretty good uh, start, at least. Growing up in Nova Scotia, there are all sorts of unique quirks, similar to the ones that do exist in baseball. So I feel like this might have been a match made in heaven. Considering when you grow up in rural parts of, I think in a lot of places in Canada, more than just the prairies or Ontario or even the Maritimes, even in Manitoba, where I'm from, baseball and hockey reign supreme in rural areas. Football requires more people, so it's not really played as much. But baseball is surprisingly super popular in Canada in smaller communities. I don't think sometimes people stop to really think about how big it is, how much bigger it is even than in a lot of cities, because there's not uh, a sanctioned university league. So most of the people are playing in those small towns. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, growing up, it's uh, certainly when you're younger, everyone played ball where I'm from and, you know, definitely in my town. And then when you get more rural out into the country and, uh, you know, the unfortunate thing is that once you turn, I mean, gosh, when I was coming up, like once you turn 14 or 15, you lose the best athletes to elite summer hockey. Now, I, I guess that happens when you're two years old because this country has just become far too hockey obsessed with year round hockey. And I, I don't believe in year-round sports obsession with one sport. I've talked to too many pro athletes who say that, you know, the reason they're good is because they play different sports. And I, I wish more kids would, but it's, uh, you know, so I, I hope we see more kids staying in the elite level baseball, uh, you know, instead of losing the best athletes to hockey. Uh, and we're seeing a bit more of that now. It's, um, it's always, it always takes longer than you think, but as we have seen, Canadian baseball stars. Uh, what I always compare it to is the NBA and basketball and the Raptors. One of the reasons we see so much Canadian talent now in the NBA is because Vince Carter and the Raptors being cool, that was about a generation ago. So kids who are two, three, five, six, they watch that. And then, you know, instead of wanting to play football or hockey, maybe they look at that and say, man, Vince Carter's on Sports Center every night. This is really cool. I'll play basketball. Now we're starting to see that happen in baseball. So when Joey Votto goes out and plays like an MVP, you're not going to see 20 more Canadians in MLB next year. It takes a 10 or 15 years of kids watching this and saying, cool, that's a Canadian guy. I'll do that too. So I think we're starting to see that more and more Canadians being drafted high, far more Canadian kids going to play NCAA ball in the U S and as you see that slowly grow, I think you'll see more and more uh, baseball being played uh, across Canada. And frankly, the Blue Jays are always going to be the straw that stirs the drink there. I remember back in 15 and 16, youth baseball um, registration rates shot up in Canada. Uh, it's, it's the same like we're seeing with soccer right now, with the men's team and their qualification for the World Cup and the women's team winning the gold medal. 
you know, everyone's going to go play soccer now. So it always goes right to the top, but it's, uh, yeah, certainly in rural areas. I remember growing up in Nova Scotia, we were okay where I'm from. Uh, we would go across the causeway to Cape Breton and get our ass kicked every time. But, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of good baseball being played out there. Very little of it by me. I was a DH by the age of five, but uh, a lot of good baseball out east. Maybe your one downfall was specializing in a position within a sport too early in. That prevented what would have been the great Keegan Matheson MLB career. I was I was a bat first. You know, it's uh, you know the simplest way to build a roster is you put the big kid at catcher, and I was a big dude, and uh, so I played a little catcher, but uh, I was never never terribly talented at baseball. You know, people always ask me that as if I. I need to qualify for my job. You know, did you play the game? A little bit, <laughs> but who cares? It's, uh, you know, certainly never with much talent, uh, never with any aspiration by any means, but I uh, have always loved it, definitely. I must ask, were your parents also baseball-centric as well? Did they have any influence? Not an athletic bone in either body, none whatsoever. No, it's, uh, but, um, you know, they certainly influenced more of my career arc. Definitely. Um, they were you know, general-ish sports fans. And, and now both of them, given my work, they follow the Blue Jays, which is, uh, which is sweet. You know, they, they are still mom and dad in, in that true sense. But um, I think they influenced uh, far more my career path. Now, um, you know, growing up, my father was a, a minister and still is. And my mother was an RCMP officer, now retired. So it's, um, you know, how I turned out okay, I don't know. But uh, it's a broad definition of okay, I guess, for using but, um, you know, my father and his role in the community, it was, was often that of a storyteller or, or of leading community events and working with people and, and so many important things like that. And, and, and speaking, you know, certainly speaking in front of large groups. And the best thing they ever did for me was, you know, when I went off to university, I did a, a double major in what was it, English and creative writing which in hindsight, what the hell was I doing? You know, it, it, it's, uh, uh, you know, it, it was what I loved at the time, but man, oh man, you know, that, that's a, it would have been easy for them to say, what the hell is this? Do something real, get a real job, please. So that's, uh, that's an incredible amount of privilege I, I was given when I was younger, but that level of support to just say, okay, you know, we trust this weird kid of ours. Maybe it'll work out eventually. And it took a while. Frankly, it took a while. I did not get this job when I was 20 right out of school or anything. It took a few years of, of working other jobs and kind of finding myself in Halifax. But just that level of support, which, again, I realize is a privilege that not everyone can be afforded uh, whatsoever. I'm very blessed to have had that. But, um, yeah, they, they definitely, uh, you know, had to stand by and watch and uh, maybe grind their teeth and cringe a few times as I took a bit of a long road. But uh, thankfully, it's uh, bounced the right way eventually. But, no, they're uh, – if we had a uh, family baseball game, it would be the ugliest thing you've ever seen. So since you went to Centennial College and you were dead set on working in the MLB, how was the path for you to getting to where you are today? Since people who work in the industry know that unless you're extremely talented or there's some super big stroke of luck, which usually doesn't happen, People usually have to grind and put in the work and put in the hours to get to at least what's seen as initially making it. I don't know if people ever really do because there's always a bigger fish, but how did you find your path to the MLB and what did you learn about yourself and the industry through that process? 
Yeah, great question. I'll, I'll, I'll give the short version and we can get into a you know, whatever parts of it you like, but it, it was when I left the program uh, originally, and, and I was very dead set on baseball. Um, I, I tell students when I work with them all the time, do not do it the way I did. It was not smart, but I sold out completely to baseball and wanting to write about baseball. Um, you know, along the way, you have to do other stuff. Absolutely. Um, but I started out with an internship at sportsnet.ca on the digital side, working with the website. Uh, with uh, Gary Mello and his team there, a lot of the great people who worked on the desk at Sportsnet. And the idea of that was writing newsers, uh, putting wire stories up on the website. Let's say if somebody like Shai Davidi or Ben Nicholson-Smith, who I now work with, filed a story, it would be me taking it, making it look pretty for the website and getting it up. Out of that, um, so that would have been leading into 2017. Um, So in 2017, I got an internship with MLB.com. Uh, it was called the associate reporter job. And unfortunately, we don't have that anymore. I wish we did. It was a great program. But that got me in covering the Blue Jays for one year. You know, you're with them on a contract for one season. And I worked with Gregor Chisholm. He's now the Toronto Star baseball columnist. But he was the MLB.com guy then. So uh, Gregor's from New Brunswick. We got along right away. So it was uh, it was good. And that was a fantastic year. Now, after that, um, my problem was that it was a one-year contract. And we are not at a point in our industry where jobs are being created, unfortunately, to cover teams directly. Um, you know, we're, there's lots of opportunities outside of a beat um, where people, you know, have jobs aggregating what people on a beat actually report on. But in terms of beat jobs, it's thin. And the only way that opens up is if somebody gets fired or drops dead. And I like the people I work with, so I don't want that to happen. So um, that is when I started a a website of my own. It was called Baseball Toronto. Um, It was a subscription website. I ran that for about a year and a half, close to two years. Um, Ran the full thing myself, did most of the writing myself. Um, It was the single best and single worst thing I've ever done. I had so much fun doing that and it nearly broke me. You know, it, it nearly made me broke number one, but uh, it was uh, a lesson in burning out in this industry. It was a lesson in needing to take care of myself a bit more, but I needed to stay afloat. And the entire purpose, the entire idea of that website was number one to cover the hell out of the blue Jays and do a good job. But, Number two is to keep myself afloat and at the front of the line for when something opened. And thank goodness, uh, you know, just before the entire thing capsized and bankrupted me, uh, this would have been in 2019. That's when Gregor Chisholm made that jump to the Toronto Star. And it's, uh, it's always a bit of a chain reaction. So at that point, Richard Griffin, who was the Toronto Star columnist, went from the Star to the Blue Jays. Gregor goes from MLB to the Star. And then there's a seat open at MLB.com. So I signed with MLB then. So it's been a few years when I'm back with them now uh, full-time. Uh, very happy because I've learned the value of stability for my personal life. Uh, I think I romanticized the grind of it all, which is a mistake. You know, it's, it's a hard balance because at one point you have to. You absolutely have to do that. But it took me a while, even after joining MLB, um, it took me a while, and frankly, it took some more veteran, older writers, you know, giving a damn about me and kind of jabbing me about it, um, just to relax and know that if I have an off day, cool, ignore baseball, you know, <laughs> and uh, 
I'm doing a much better job of that now. If I have an off day, the sport of baseball does not exist, and I am not a baseball writer. The moment I walk out of that stadium at night, my job is not a baseball writer. I'm gone. The moment I step back in there, sure, I'm all in. It's my life, but uh, it's been uh, <laughs> you know, challenging. I have not done a perfect job of that whatsoever. But um, yeah, that's the the general journey uh, to get here, and it's uh, everyone's as much different. Certainly now, uh, I wish this was 30 years ago and you and I could just walk into a newspaper and get an entry-level job and climb the ladder steadily, but it seems like now everybody needs to make a thousand lateral and diagonal jumps uh, along the way, but uh, it's an interesting time. When you talk about that balance, I remember in the letter to yourself that we had received in class, we were listening to the inside of many alumni who have gone on to do great things. And you were one of them who had talked about the balance and also maybe avoiding too many buffets. I don't yeah. know how, how much <laughs> I'll take that to heart because I still have yet to come across a buffet in the press box that we can go crazy on, but with balance, that is a big rabbit hole topic in and of itself for this generation. When it comes to creating your own thing, having to put yourself out there, having to continue to do work, even if there's no guarantee, also trying to have a social life, also trying to think about if your money is going to waste renting or if you want to buy a house or where you're going to live, who your friends are. Are you going to get in a relationship? Are you going to get married? Are you going to have children? Are you not? What do you want to do with your life? Are you going to, are you reading? Are you drinking water? Are you exercising? Are you praying? Are you reading? Like, are you, there's a billion questions that always come into a person's mind. And especially I think with people in the sports media industry in particular, because of the uncertain hours and the longevity that is required to make it to big levels. What is the most difficult part that you found about breaking out of that mold of being so focused and grinding and being so gun ho and over the top, maybe at times. Yeah, there's a guilt associated with it. You know, and, and certainly when I moved out, um, you know, there, there's an industry guilt associated with it. And then I felt a lot of personal guilt moving out here. I, I mean, coming from my family, you know, my mother and grandfather on that side were Mounties. On the other side of my family, you know, my father is a, a minister. And when growing up, he was a paramedic and a firefighter because that's how it works in a small town. Um, that entire side of my family had worked hard jobs, worked in the lobster boats, worked in the coal mines. And then suddenly... I'm the idiot who cashes in on that and sits in an air conditioned press box full of snacks, writing about baseball. Like who the hell am I to, to, to deserve doing that? That's something I struggled with a lot. Um, but certainly in terms of the industry, um, the hard thing for me was learning how to draw a hard line between being 100% on and 100% off. I made the mistake for years of being half and half or if I had an off day, I'd still be 10% on. I would be checking Twitter, making sure I don't miss anything. Uh, I'd be checking minor league box scores. Is there a top prospect doing something? I have to be first there. I have to be last out, which is all fake. It was fake effort, and, and you know, not uh, not fraudulent, but you know, certainly a lot of it was for show because I thought I had to. And the difficult thing to figure out, and I didn't do a good job of it, is when you can ease off the gas a bit, because when I was just starting out, I would 
be taking radio hits at 6 a.m. I'd go back to bed, cover the game. I'd be getting off the bus to do another radio hit at 12.05 a.m. midnight on my way home. I was saying yes to everything. You get into that trap of, you know, we don't pay you, but it's exposure. To which I say, shut up. No, <laughs> it's work has value. Um, even though we use the word content to just make everything sound free and cheap and the same. No, the word content is the devil to me. I, I don't like that. And I don't like the idea of exposure. But unfortunately, that's how people get noticed. And if you say no to that, the next five are going to say yes. And it sucks. I don't know what the answer to that is. And again, I want to keep highlighting the fact that I, I did have some privilege going into that. I, I was allowed to do a, a, an internship that was unpaid, for example, because I was broke. Totally. I was broke. But I knew that if the bottom fell out from it, I had a family and a house to go home to that would take care of me. You know, I, I had a safety net that not everybody has. So when I was saying yes to doing free radio hits to get some exposure, when I was saying yes to internships, there was a little more safety uh, for me in that than a lot of people are afforded. And that's one of the many ways that the industry is broken right now. It's putting up a lot of blockades to people who might have a lot of talent. Um, I think I'm starting to see that change. And I don't mean 100% change. I mean, it's starting to shift back and we're starting to do a better job, but that needs to speed up. So it's, you know, once you get through those stumbling blocks of how and when to take opportunities, I think a lot of it for me is like you said off the top, being able to manage relationships and the schedule, because whether you're working in my job or if you're working at TSN Sportsnet, cutting highlights or editing the website, there's a lot of times where, you know, for example, my week right now, I was trying to make plans with somebody uh, a couple of days ago. And you're left in a spot where you're sending a text message that says, okay, well, I work the next three days. I'm off Thursday night, depending on when the baseball game ends. And then I work for the next four days. So you become that one in the friend group or in the family who has the weird schedule. You feel like you're asking people to move around your schedule or you just don't see people at all. I'm lucky that I have a couple of close friends who cover the Blue Jays. So, you know, my social life becomes, you know, getting drinks at midnight on a Monday after a game. But it's, it's really tough to manage that if your close friends or if your partner, for example, is working a nine to five. You know, they get home from work at five o'clock. I'm already at the ballpark. That's not going to work. So it's, uh, it's really a tightrope of managing personal relationships, but also managing yourself. And again, I'll go back to that. That's something I screwed up. Uh, I used to think that burning out was a kind of vague concept that just meant you got tired. But for two seasons in 2018 and 19, I burnt out and realized that it's, it's way more than that. You know, I showed up in August and September and I could not write a good story to save my life because I was so burnt out. So it's, uh, it's about trying to do a better job of being all the way off when I'm off. And it's, uh, you know, even if you're 5% on, that's going to keep burning in the back of your brain. Uh, you're never going to come all the way down. So it's uh, an imperfect industry that does not have a perfect answer for this, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, I fear that the true answer is that it's something you have to screw up and figure out. But, um, you know, my, my advice to younger people getting into the industry when I get this question is that 
as you screw it up, be conscious of it. You know, it's, I've seen a lot of people who have just screwed it up and then kept screwing it up. But for example, the year that I burnt out, that was wrong. You know, it it was uh, my mistake, Mm -hmm. but now I know what burning out feels like. Or if you have a relationship or a friendship fall apart because your schedule and how you manage your time, well, how can you do that better next time for the next person type of deal? It's uh, it's hard to keep that headspace, but uh, it's at least kept me alive lately for now. We'll see. Everything that you share in that story, it hits home so much and not even just for me, but for the listener, when you think about a lot of jobs outside of the nine to five realm that people struggle to balance with. One thing that I could say on this based on a book that I've read and someone who touts the the idea of balance for sports fans out there, they may know the name Tim Grover and Tim Grover for if people don't know is the guy who trained Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant and Dwayne Wade and has trained many professional athletes since then. There was a story that he gave about work-life balance. And this is the way it goes. He'll be in a room of people or at a conference or even just with a one-on-one conversation and say, who wants zero friends? Who wants zero happiness? Who wants zero money? And so on and so forth. And then, and no one ever raises their hand, of course. And then at the end, he says, what's the number on a perfectly balanced scale? Zero. Yeah. And the point he's trying to make is that there's no such thing as perfect balance. Balance looks different for everybody. So when you talk about the schedule you're going through, maybe, you know, not paying attention to baseball between 9 a.m. and 1 p.m. on your off days is that's balance or you go and do things during the day, but you have to stay up later at night or you arrange to see your friends during certain times, or you only really have friends who work with the blue Jays. And that's something that you're going to have to, if it works for you, it works and it doesn't have to make sense to anyone else. And I think that's probably one of the things that I'm sure you've realized from this crazy schedule is that baseball is the craziest schedule in all sports. And you just have to find a way to make the balance work for yourself and not really for anyone else, unfortunately. Yeah, it will be different for everyone. And certainly now that I've gotten into this beat work of traveling a lot, now that we're back, you know, uh, not post-COVID, but um, post-restrictions to some extent, um, there's a lot of travel involved, you know? So there's lots of weeks where someone will ask me, hey, let's go for drinks. And I'll say, oh, I'm covering baseball the next five days in Toronto. Then I'm in LA. Then I'm in St. Louis. Uh, what about two weeks from now? That would be all. So it's um, you know, finding that balance is key. And for me, it, it had to do with um, really recognizing what I based my identity on. And when I started in this industry, I tied too much of my identity to my work. If you asked me who I was, I'd say I'm Keegan Matheson. I'm a baseball writer. I cover the Blue Jays. Now that's the 10th thing I'll tell you. I don't care about it. So it's a... And a few years ago, if I heard myself saying this, I'd be saying, well, do you not take your work seriously? Do you not care? Are you ungrateful? But you can draw a hard line between that. And right now, when I'm at work, the moment I leave here in a couple of hours and walk into the ballpark, I take it very seriously. I want to write a good story. I want to tell good stories and be a good reporter. That matters to me completely, but not until I get there. Because 
the point of my job is to, yes, enjoy it, absolutely, and, and do a good job, but I want to have a personal life. You know, I, I want to enjoy myself outside of baseball, and that's not going to come from work. You know, as long as work can be neutral for me, you know, as long as I can not melt down and storm out, that's good enough. I'm, I'm happy. Uh, because the entire point, you know, when I go to the ballpark is, yes, to write a good story, but really it's to go home. <laughs> we, we all prefer to be away from work than at work. Even when you have a job, it's really cool. And I love my job. I recognize it's a cool job. But there are times where I want to be away from it. And that realization helped me get to a point where it's not my entire identity anymore. And when it was my entire identity, that's when I let it eat up all my free time. Uh, I, I was too invested in it. And that's when you get into, you know, another thing that plagues media is being petty and there's jealousy. Why is this person getting this appearance? Why is this person getting this story or this source? Who cares? You know, at, at the end of the day, I, I finally realized I, I cover baseball. Um, and I'm comfortable now saying that that's not an important job. And that's okay. You know, I, I'm not working in brain surgery. I am not working in foreign affairs or, or an important position where I'm impacting people's lives. It's an entertainment business. You know, it's a silly job covering a sport where millionaires play a kid's game. It's not important to, you know, to the big world. Now it's enjoyable and people enjoy it and hopefully enjoy reading stuff I write, but the, the weight of it and the scale of it is not worth the stress I was giving. it. And now that I've can step back from that and, accepted the job for what it is and the work for what it is, I feel like I'm better at it, you know, because I walk in there with a fresh head. I was just off for a week right now. The Blue Jays were on a road trip and I was off. A few years ago, I would have been watching every game, writing from home, and I would have walked back in there today kind of burnt out, just looking for whatever story hits me in the face. Um, this past week, I didn't watch baseball at all. I, I didn't want to, so I didn't. Now, today, I'll walk back in with a fresh head. Maybe I care a bit more. Maybe I go have a few conversations with players because I haven't been around in a while. And I think you'll see, you know, I'm starting to see, sorry, uh, how that's impacted me more positively, you know, not taking it too, too seriously. Um, you know, taking, uh, you know, the best way to describe it, I guess, is that I, I take the work seriously, but not the job. You know, when it's time to work, absolutely. I'm fully in reporter mode. My work matters a lot to me, but the job itself, I write about baseball. You know, it's uh, so if my hand slips, I'm not clipping a, a nerve and paralyzing somebody. If my if my hand slips, nobody's lives are affected. It's just a typo, and that's fine. And you always have room for other jobs and just things that will help you provide for that nice cozy cottage on the coast of Cape Breton for when <laughs> you retire, or whether okay. it's being a Seth Rogen stunt double or whatever it is, something that. <laughs> You know, you wouldn't really have, you don't even have to exert lots of effort because of how talented you are and being well-read and being able to write and being able to speak. Like those things can carry over to so many different jobs. Writing about baseball is cool and working in sports is cool. But as Shai Davidi always told us, we're not splitting the atom. No yeah. one is dying. It's okay. And it's something that I try to take a bit to heart from what he says. Obviously, when you're starting out and you don't have that quote-unquote initial stability, it's yeah. difficult because you're constantly looking around like, where am I going to get my next opportunity? Or, I mean, at least for someone like myself, well, what am I going to do next? What can I write about? Where can I diversify? But 
I think it is important to take a step back and realize, okay, if you died tomorrow, God forbid, they need someone to fill that role. They're not going to shut down Toronto Blue Jays writer for MLB.com because Keegan Matheson passed away, rest his soul. They're going to find the next person or Julia's going to bump into your spot. Someone's going to bump into her spot and so on and so forth. So not to say that they're cruel, but it's just a necessary aspect of business. So if they would replace you tomorrow, you have to take care of your life and yourself more than your job. Absolutely. There's always going to be something else, you know, and, uh, and that's another positive thing because it's, you know, working in media, you're, you're always a phone call or an email away from a bad day. And, um, you know, these skills are transferable. It's one thing I have learned working with young writers and being around a lot of journalists. Um, and I tell people a lot, you would not believe how rare a skill it is to be able to write a freaking sentence that makes sense. I have read so many stories, essays, and things that are just unreadable and as people who work in media and work in writing, that, that's just our natural thing. You know, and we can write sensibly. I think we lose track of how rare a skill good communication is. Um, because, you know, people who work in media, for the most part, um, A, can write okay, and B, we never shut up. So we're decent communicators. But that skill is very rare. And especially in other fields, whether you're looking into business, finance, especially when you're looking into medicine, the sciences, into technology, um, you know, I'm not going to show up and perform the surgery. I'm not going to show up and tell them how to build a new machine or design a new app or do anything for their startup company. But all of these places need PR. They need communications. They need press releases written up. They need internal comms. They need external comms. There are so many exciting directions that people have taken journalism degrees and and communication skills that uh i think i'm i'm a weird kind of old school example just went to journalism school and became a beat writer like it's the 70s or something but there's a, a lot of pretty refreshing ways you can take this and i think that companies are doing a better job now of of seeing the value of communication skills you know even if your degree does not say exactly what they need um, you know, being able to prove that you can take ideas and communicate it to people, uh, it's valuable. And, and again, it is a billion times more rare than you would expect. I, I've seen so many times where people who are, who work in finance or, or work in another field, try to write something to explain or communicate something. And I think, oh my God. So never underestimate the value of uh, being able to write a sentence that just makes a lick of sense. It's uh, it's rare. Have you ever seen Office Space? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. What you do at Inatech is you take the requests from the engineers <laughs> and you bring them to the customers. Well, no, <laughs> not exactly. <laughs> so you physically deliver the message from the customer to the engineer. Well, no, the people <laughs> in this department do that. Mr. So Simkowski, what would you say you do here? Exactly. That exactly. scene I always think of when people say, it's important to have people skills and communicate. And if the listeners who is listening to this has not seen Office Space, go watch it. That That is, you know, the personality trait of watching The Office has Office Space and Mike Judge to thank yeah. for all the jokes and the dry humor. But it's it's so tr- it's so funny because it's so true. 
being able to communicate is a lot more difficult than people think it is. And that's why it's so quintessential to any job. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's at the core of our job, but I think it's a very important secondary skill or even even primary skill in a lot of jobs. And it's, uh, it's something that I've tried to better understand, you know, um, not just communicating well, but communicating with people in the voice they need to hear it in. And that doesn't mean being fake and it doesn't mean switching, you know, who I am and what I talk like. But for example, if the Blue Jays make a big trade today, I will have to write a story. I'll have to go on the radio. I'll have to do TV. Um, I'm going to be a different person on each of those formats in the story. Maybe I'll be a little more middle of the road, you know, or a little more baseball-y on the radio. If I've got a five or 10 minute block, I'll explain it. I'll flesh it out a little bit more. And on TV, maybe I've got two minutes. That's when I'm talking like my mom is watching, you know, like, here's what this means. This was a really good player, but now they have this other good player. Very simple for people who might not be a hardcore fan. And it's, uh, you know, different people need to hear things in different ways. Um, I think a mistake that we make in baseball coverage is trying to prove that we're smart. I used to do this too much in terms of just loading up a story with stats and numbers. And here's what these analytics mean. Shut up. You know, it's like, congratulations, but you're only impressing two or 300 people. And you're only doing it because those are the people who tweet you. You know, it's that little echo chamber where you want to prove that you're a smart baseball man. I don't care. You know, I'm confident that I know baseball. I don't need to desperately flail to prove it to you. Right. The what I try to remember now is that the 99 percent of people reading my stories are fans. Yeah. But not the super hardcore exit velocity fans who want to know every single number. Now, I'll still include that because that's valuable, but give me some context. Don't just beat me over the head with charts and graphs and numbers because that makes you sound smart. I think part of communication is being aware of who you're talking to and being aware of your audience. And the majority, vast majority of my audience is a casual fan who wants to go drink a few $18 beers and yell at the team, and they don't know why Jose Bautista isn't there still. So... You know, that doesn't mean I need to dumb down my content, but it means that I need to be aware of it. And you know what? It's as long as I know that I know baseball, that's good enough for me. I'm not trying to prove it to anybody um, by beating people over the head again with with stats and numbers. But uh, it's about being aware of who you're talking to and aware of how they need to hear things because it's not always the same. And doing it my way every single time is not always going to work. Ricky, you're a local resident here of Sunnyvale Trailer Park. What do you think of the incumbent running for mayor? The what? <laughs> the incumbent. Why got to use your big school words? Why can't you just use normal people words? <laughs> the best documentary ever made, let me tell you. Not to make too many television and movie references, but that example from Trailer Park Boys, something I'm sure you're a little bit familiar with, right. is so rings so true to what you're saying. Being able to, like, I'm not a person that follows baseball as much as someone that would read all your writing intensively. So if I sit there and read OBPS and, and ABC and XYZ, like what the hell does that mean? But if you're explaining it to me, like as if you were explaining it to your mom, then that is such an important part of communicating. And I think that that does get lost sometimes in baseball. And the more that the sport is curated to new fans, I think the better it'll be for the growth of the game. 
Absolutely. I think we see a lot of that in basketball coverage. You know, yes, there's some advanced stuff, but I think basketball coverage does a good job of covering people, you know, and not every story I write can be, you know, Lord S. Guriel Jr. saved a kitten from a tree. You know, there's a time and a place, but we can't get too light with everything. But, um, but again, yeah, it's, it's remembering who you're talking to and, and also being aware that when I write, it's about the reader. It's a little bit about me because I'm the storyteller. You're involved in it. You can't be all the way out of it. And, and I'm determining what's being said or being written. But it's about the reader. You know, it's not about me trying to prove something and being smart. You know, I, I don't care if people think I'm smart about baseball because I don't think that's a terribly important thing in the world. <laughs> you know, I would rather they think a thousand other things about me before saying he knows baseball really well. I don't care. Um, so it's, it's important to, to tell good stories that are going to connect with people. You know, a lot of the time that's going to be a more personal story or, you know, I'm always fascinated with why and how things happen. So if Teoscar Hernandez goes on a hot streak next week, yes, I could beat you over the head with exit velocities, what portions of the zone he's swinging in. But a better way is for me to know that and have that in my back pocket, maybe mention it in a line, but ask him why he's doing this. Did anyone give him advice? Did his confidence change? Was his confidence low before? How does he feel now? Is he getting different pitches? Did he get advice from a teammate? Did he watch a teammate maybe who was doing something different? Maybe Vladdy gave him a tip or maybe Charlie Montoyo said something to him or a hitting coach. That's far more relatable than me waving a calculator around. And people are going to relate to that 10 times out of 10. And there's still room for me to say with a line, one change he also made was avoiding low and away sliders. And he's now targeting middle, middle fastballs. I can do that without a thousand charts and data. It's, it's, it's doable. And it's a mistake I made when I was younger, but I'm trying to get away from that. Maybe for the people out there who are familiar with John Boyce's work at SB Nation then, and Secret Base, I guess I should now say, they can dive into the three-month research chart party episodes where you're looking at every single obscure stat. But for, yeah, the regular reader, it is important to be able to be related to. And now that we have touched upon this potential wormhole, there's something within the scope and the fabric of Canadian pop culture that may not be more relatable than Trailer Park Boys. So I know that I'm sure as someone from Nova Scotia that this is the most stereotypical cliche question people ask and talk about, but I need to ask it. What do you think of Trailer Park Boys? And what is your quick analysis of the show's importance in the fabric of Canadian television? Oh, I love that show. I grew up on that show. You know, Bubbles is from my town. We would always see Ricky and Julian out at the bars. Um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, Mr. Leahy, you would see him doing, um, doing stage shows around Halifax as a very serious stage actor. Um, you know, we would see Randy out at the bar with his gut out. You know, it, it was very much something that was of Nova Scotia. And I always joke that it's a documentary because it's awfully true. But that became, you know, kind of like for a lot of people of a certain age where the like Anchorman, Step Brothers, Super Bad movies came along and just changed how every idiot guy in high school spoke. Um, that's kind of how, how it worked for Trailer Park Boys and a lot of us, you know, it's, uh, 
it's it's something I've I've usually got on a bit of a rewatch. The other night I had the classic uh, Steve French episode on TV. It was uh, it, it it was an amazing show to where I have friends who worked on it. You know, I've I've driven past where they film it. Everyone's got stories, you know, for that. Um, you know, uh, Ricky's dad golfed at my golf club. The guy in the chair. You know, it, it's it was very much something of Nova Scotia. And um, man, oh man, those were uh, when I watch it now. When I watch back, you know, season one, two, three, and get into it, I think, you know, I'm I'm glad it took off, but I'm surprised it made it there, you know. And uh, so many, like even Jonathan Torrens coming out of that, so much of the amazing work he does now, uh, another great Nova Scotian, and you know, Corey Bowles, a lot of the the artists that are involved in that. I, I think people look at the show and make the mistake of assuming, oh, okay, this is just a bunch of dumb guys making dumb jokes. Mostly, yeah, <laughs> but. Um, a lot of the people involved with that have done incredible things, whether it's in Nova Scotia or, or throughout Canada with the arts, um, with, with um, theater and stage shows, with film, with television. It's uh, it, amazing to see a lot of that, the supporting characters and that. But uh, yeah, Trailer Park Boys is uh, definitely the, the TV show uh, of my people. And see, I'm 31 now. And even if I'm home for Christmas and me and the guys are in the basement drinking and playing a video game, we're quoting Trailer Park Boys, even though we probably don't know it a lot of the time. It's nice for friends to help each other out. Yeah. Thanks to the video games and ice cream, Mr. Leahy. Oh, shit, it's Julian. He's outside. Julian, be right there, bud. <laughs> <laughs> Leading it's to some of the most iconic scenes. Him, Julian, get an oral Falcon, get a little drink around. Here, do you, bud? Yeah, it's perfect. Perfect. Perfect show. Oh, man. it's I, I was shown it by my older brother and... And I, I truly believe that it is a staple of Canadian pop culture. And it's, uh, it's important to know the roots of where it came from. And even though it's become bigger and they go to America and all stuff, yeah. you can't ever forget the early seasons and the simplicity. I think the thing, the sh- I think the, the most important element to the show is just like the lessons it teaches that are very subtle in enjoying a simple life and caring for your friends and being about your community, like them drinking water or alcohol out of a, uh, cut in half PC cola, one liter bottle, a dog dish and a, a small little mustard glass because they were able to scam the Zellers into getting a $100 launchable rocket. That's right. That's right. No, it's the simple things are the best, man. Great show, but the simple things are the best out there. Keegan, we are getting towards the end of our time on today's episode. So I want to ask you a few quick wrap up questions to have a little bit more fun before we All go right. for today. What is the best baseball movie in your opinion? The best baseball what, sorry? Baseball movie. Baseball movie. Wow. All right. You can get into the field of dreams and everything else. I'm going to give you the early 90 hit, Ed, starring Matthew LeBlanc, where he's a dairy farmer playing for an independent league team, and a monkey starts playing for the team, and it's got a really small strike zone. He's got a great on-base percentage. It might be the single worst movie I've ever seen in my entire life, but for that reason, it is art. Favorite, when you go home, what's your favorite pastime? When I go home, before I even go to my family's house, I pick up a doner, which is the official food of Nova Scotia. It's kind of like a gyro, but just significantly better. I will not hear anything to the contrary. So my favorite thing to do when I go home is to get a doner, eat it, fall asleep for about 18 hours and feel terrible about myself. But then uh, spend time in Halifax. Halifax is the best city in this entire damn country. I love it. 
right along the waterfront there is as good as it gets for me. And uh, yeah, that's the place I, I always want to be. Halifax, waterfronts, all those bars, pubs along there. Perfect place. What is your favorite city in Canada outside of the Maritimes? Ooh, outside of the Maritimes. Okay, this is tough. Um, Montreal does have to be up there. I've had a lot of fun in Montreal. Um, maybe too much, some might say. Uh, Toronto is skyrocketing up the rankings. I've got a lot of love for Hamilton. I think it's Ontario's Nova Scotia. Have not been out west enough. I need to spend more time in Vancouver, but man, I like spending time in Montreal. It's a, it's a fun city, and I, I wish the Jays would do that exhibition game there a little more often. What is something that is interesting or unique about yourself that most people don't know? Ooh, man, I'm an oversharer. I don't know if there's a, enough of that, but um, I guess all of my old man hobbies. You know, I, I, I grew up, uh, you know, working on lobster boats and stuff like that. Which I, I'm sure most people know if they make the mistake of following me, but um, I love uh, woodworking, fixing old typewriters. I've got a couple of old typewriters down in there. Uh, this is a, a 1956 Royal Quiet Deluxe, which is my regular one. Uh, I just fixed up a, uh, what was it? It was a, gosh, it was another Royal I, I just fixed up. And then an Olivetti Laterra I was working on earlier. I've got a little toolbox where I fix up old typewriters like a senior citizen. But I like to do things with my hands, whether it's woodworking. I used to be a, a very passionate woodworker when I had some space, which is not a thing that exists in this ridiculous city. But uh, yeah, any, anything I can do working with my hands, not on a screen, not involving baseball, I'm in. Favorite three episodes of Trailer Park Boys in no particular order? Oh, man. Steve French would have to be up there. Um, I am a sucker for some of the conky episodes. Um, Maybe the one where they're uh, stealing the meat from the supermarket and Bubbles is in the backseat singing the Casino Taxi song and it goes over the the loudspeakers when they're stealing the meat in uh, in the gift boxes. That has to be up there. But um, yeah, and then the movies too. We can't leave out the movies. Countdown to Liquor Day and the, the Trailer Park Boys movies. Those are, uh, those are good ones. But definitely, uh, I was glad I mentioned earlier, I had Steve French on the other day, but uh, those are some classics. What's your favorite season of Trailer Park Boys, if you have one? Oh, I'd have to go early. Um, probably in that early two or three kind of season when it was still the crappy old camera. Um, that, like when you watch it on Netflix on your home screen, it's still not even the full screen. It, it's got to be early. Um, really anything like the, the good J-Rock ones get me too. Um, I, I think like Jonathan Torrens as J-Rock is just a, a damn accomplishment. Like I, it's, you know, knowing who Jonathan Torrens is now and so much of the amazing work he does. I watch back some of those J-Rock episodes and it just blows my mind, but I, I'm an early season purist. Absolutely. Yeah. I would, I would argue the golden seasons three to six are the most most flawless run of Canadian television. And in my opinion, I don't think there's any contrary to that. My final question is if you had the opportunity to work a job that was not related to sports, what would it be? Who, if I had to leave sports entirely, uh, I would like to continue writing. Um, it would be more adjacent. I, I would love to be more of a magazine feature writer, you know, writing profiles of people, um, you know, profiles of people or situations, whatever it might be, but really personal profiles. I love getting deep on a person uh, outside of sports. But if I had to go further, even away, 
honestly, if, if this job disappeared from me today, I would probably start from scratch, take a trade, be a carpenter, do something that does not involve me looking at a screen all day because I, uh, I'm, I'm bad for getting attached to a screen for 18 hours a day. I'm very bad for that. So I would want to get away from that and do something with my hands that I can control. I have realized over the years that I would not fit in a nine to five office situation. I'm too stubborn. It's a fault of mine, but I would last a week and I would snap. So I would need to do something where I'm working with my hands and uh, controlling a bit of it myself uh, to, you know, to work around those flaws, let's say. Keegan, I want to thank you so much for having me on today's episode. It was great getting to chat with you over Zoom and finally get to flesh out many of the great stories and elements of your character that bring to life what it's like to be an MLB writer, what it's like to be from the Maritimes, I think more importantly, and just about how to navigate the difficulty of uh, the hellfire that people can experience early on in the industry. No, absolutely. It's been my pleasure, man. Anytime at all. I've enjoyed talking. And thank you to the listener for enjoying today's episode with MLB writer for the Toronto Blue Jays, Keegan Matheson. First and goal from the one. This is it. Stiegel. Touchdown. Matt Stiegel. Touchdown, Regal. 138. That is the all-time Canadian Football League. Touchdown, King. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Check out our social media pages for more at Huddle Up underscore mb for full audio head over to spotify and apple podcasts for full video head over to youtube at huddle up with matias bueno tune in next week for another great episode see you next time